Welcome to Eye to Eye, the podcast of the Royal College of Ophthalmologists. My name is Sunil Mamtora, and I will be your host. Thanks for downloading this first episode in what I hope will be a long series. In this podcast, we will be bringing you the latest from the literature in ophthalmology, clinical updates, news from the college, and much more. For our first ever episode, we have two interviews from the recent College Congress in Glasgow, followed by a special message for our new ST1 trainees. The first interview we have for you is with Fard Qhill, a consultant ophthalmologist from Sheffield. I spoke to him about retinal injuries caused by laser pointers. Here's the interview and I hope you enjoy it. So tell us the issues about laser pointer maculopathy. Well, this has been an issue that's only been ongoing, I think, for the last five to six years. So previously, laser pointers, the kind that you'd use in your presentation, which has an output power of about one milliwatt, there's a very low likelihood that it can actually cause an injury. You'd have to stare at it for quite a few hours for it to heat up the retina enough to induce a retinal burn. However, something happened about four or five years ago where the online market specifically was being flooded by high-powered laser pointers. So they look exactly the same as a low-powered laser pointer. So you put a high-powered with a low-powered laser pointer side by side, you cannot actually tell the difference. The difference is that the output power can be anything between, between 40 to 100 times, so even even a thousand times more powerful. Now, if you're selling them in an online market, marketplace and people buy them and misuse them, there's the potential for retinal injury. And we, in Sheffield, we kind of saw a spate of several children being injured because they self-inflicted this kind of burn um, inadvertently into, into their eye with consequent uh, vision loss. Um, the issue is that the, the, the problem is that in the online marketplace is that they're also being advertised as being one milliwatt. So the traders who are selling these wares online are actually de- deceiving the public. So they're saying that they meet the requirement that they're safe, but, they're, but when you test them, their output powers are anything but. Um, and I, I, you know, it, unfortunately, it's affecting young children, uh, teenagers, uh, but also uh, adults with um, uh, mental health problems. So we have patients with sometimes with depression, who this may be a mechanism of self-harm, and are, they're inducing blindness uh, um, using laser pointers, or uh, if there's financial gain. So it's a, it's a, it's a real problem, and uh, and I'm passionate about them because I feel these injuries would never have occurred if these devices weren't in the marketplace. Yeah. I mean, from looking at your poster and reading around the literature related to these issues, it seems that laser pointers can cause quite horrific sight-changing and life-changing injuries. Absolutely. And it sounds like, you know, part of the issue is that people don't really understand the potential of damage that they can cause. That's right. The thing is, uh, people think of a laser like a flash light. They, but they don't realise, actually, it's not a flashlight, which is very divergent, non-coherent light. Yeah. This is very focused, coherent light, which is concentrated on a very tiny area. And unfortunately for our eyes, our eyes transmit the laser beam very elegantly, uh, and, we, uh, and then the light energy is absorbed at the retinal pigment of epithelium. So it's exactly the wrong area, because then that yeah. area becomes um, hot, uh, you raise it by 10 to 20 degrees and you cause, you induce a burn at the level of the photoreceptor. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's the issue. They just don't recognise that a light could actually make a life-changing, uh, differ- um, can induce such, such a life-changing injury. And, and you've got to use that kind of language because, you know, these kids 
you know, when they get an acute renal injury, although they're, particularly if they've not exposed their eye to long exposures of laser, uh, of, 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 of laser, even though their vision may recover in the long term to 6'6", they're often adapting to a, a blind spot, a sotoma in their vision for several months, for, for, for quite a few weeks that takes a while for that after image to actually resolve. How distressing is that for a child? So it's their emotional well-being, but also you lose the reflectivity in your inner segment, outer segment junction. So I have no doubt it affects the cone density and uh, impacts on their contrast sensitivity and I've got data to support that. And so it's essentially a nine-year-old because of a, you know, a because they've misused their laser pointer they should never have had in the first place, yeah. has induced an injury that although on Snell and Acuity appears to be 6'6", and they're fine, they've settled down, they've healed. But actually, when you measure their contrast sensitivity, they have that of a 60-year-old. So a nine-year-old is having to use more light, maybe larger print, mm. and that's at the age of nine. I have no idea what's going to happen in the long term. Mm. We need to do longitudinal studies because I'm, con I'm there may be further degeneration because we are aware laser yeah. burns can spread, they get bigger, they enlarge. And the other thing I'm concerned about is the risk of choroidal neovascularization. Definitely, that is something and which is discussed in literature, that that isn't it? Yeah. On, on their vision. And I have cases where um, I have uh, one, one child, she was in a, she was in a, 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 a class, a pupil um, shone a laser pointer in her eye very briefly, and six months later, she's developed an extra foveal in your vascularization that's needed individual injections yeah. at the age of 16. Wow. I think part of the problem is by human nature, we tend to look at anything which shines Correct. towards us, isn't Correct. it? Correct. If I shine a, a torch at you or something of interest, you are automatically going to look at it. That is what yeah. we do. That's what our brains are wired to do. But the problem is, that therefore, that beam focuses on the fovea, and it's just a pinprick of, from the, of that entire retina, 0.2 millimeters in size, but so much of our high-functioning vision is invested in that small area, so we cannot afford to injure it. Of course. Would you say that most of the injuries you see are self-inflicted? I would say the majority are self-inflicted. Um, some are inflicted by others, tends to be a brother, a sibling, okay, a brother, so a sister, or a school, unintentional unintentionally school friend yeah. who didn't quite realise the injuries, the, the significance of the injury. I am not aware of any assault cases in the UK. Okay. I've not, I've not yeah. seen an assault case in Sheffield. That's something we should worry about, though, isn't it, in the future? But I, I am aware of other countries where there have been assault cases. Really? Uh, where high-powered blue laser pointers are being used, and um, just as you, was, you, you, you would use a weapon, they would use the laser pointer, and, but they're so powerful, like 800 milliwatts, 1,000 milliwatt high-powered laser pointers, they induce a macal hole or a, 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 a croidal hemorrhage, for example. Mm -hmm. So they're very powerful uh, laser pointers. And then very rarely, fortunately, uh, cases of self-harm. Mm. So you mentioned blue laser pointers there as well. I mean, most of the posters in the literature that I read and even the laser pointers I've seen abroad as well tend to be green. Is there any difference to the type of damage that different laser yeah, pointers Yeah, so I, th I, think, I think green laser, uh, sorry, green laser wavelengths are likely to give you photocoagulation type injuries okay. so the kind of injury that you see um, 
when you do your PR, uh, panretinal laser burn. And that, that, that's one way to diagnose a laser injury, is that you get an acute pacification of the, or yellowing of the retina in the acute phase with hyperreflective changes yeah. on the OCT that tend to stop at the plexiform layer. And then as, that, as the pacification settles, you then uh, and the the burns begin to heal. They start to resemble photocoagulation burns, okay. um, which are then mirrored uh, with uh, by, uh, sorry mirrored by um, uh, losses in the inner segment outer segment junction on the OCT. Uh, I think blue wavelengths are more disruptive, photo disruptive. So. Okay. Um, they expand the tissue very, very quickly, mm. and so they tend to cause uh, bleeds, pre, um, uh, either pre-retinal or macular holes. So it's like submacular hemorrhage as well? Or, or, uh, possibly. I mean, I, yeah. I have to say, I've, uh, that's more... Um, my understanding of blue laser injuries tends to be from the literature. Sure. Uh, I've yeah. not seen them myself. Yeah. So based on what you were saying before, it sounds as though you know patients can make some initial gains in their vision from the initial presenting vision. Do you have any recommendations for any treatment that may help patients to in these situations? So I think the two, in my experience, the two biggest prognostic signs is your presenting acuity. If you've got a, a child or an adult with a good presenting acuity, the likelihood is their vision will recover or stay at that very good level. Okay? Yeah. The second uh, prognostic factor is the amount of, uh, the intensity of the autofluorescence at baseline. Okay. If they have a very intense, increased autofluorescence at baseline. That's a poor prognostic sign in my case yeah. because they've released so much photoreceptor. Um, uh, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's an indirect sign of the, the degree of photoreceptor damage. I see. Um, so I, 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 mean, I know that's not answering your question, but I just want to kind of make your listeners aware of the prognostic signs. So if you start off bad, you're going to do badly. Sure. If you have 660 at baseline presenting, you're, you're not going to recover. Yeah. But if you see somebody in the acute phase where either you suspect it's a laser injury or they've admitted to misusing a laser and the retinas are pacified and there's lots of transparency of the underlying choroidal structures, then I would advise giving a short course of steroid treatment. So I'd probably give half a milligram per kilogram. Okay. And I would maybe give them that for three days and then taper it over the next couple of weeks so it's safely tapered. Mm-hmm. Um, don't forget to give, you know, have add Cal D3 and your meprazole. Yeah. If, however, they present at a much later stage and now the photocoagulation burns are evident, then I think, it's, unfortunately, there's very limited... Uh, inter- there's no intervention that you can provide, actually. And unfortunately, at that time, you've just got to counsel them and identify if there are any is there is there any low vision support that they might need in order for them to adapt to the to the visual the loss of visual function sure. because of this laser pointer injury. Sure, I mean laser pointers have been on the news quite recently, you know, with reports of increasing incidents where people are shining laser pointers at planes and trains and other kind of situations. Where does the law stand on people shining uh, that, laser pointers that, at each other? That's now illegal, okay. and uh, you will be prosecuted under the law, even if you shone a low-power laser pointer at an aircraft or a moving vehicle, uh, it's now illegal. Where does the law stand on if you shine a laser pointer at somebody else and inflict a life-changing injury? I I think if you can prove, if if you're able to prove to the court and you're able to 
um, identify who the offender was, then I think that would be classed as assault. Yeah, I would expect so as well. I'd hope so. And just just a final rec- final question. I mean, what recommendations would you have maybe for parents who are considering buying laser pointers for their children, or anyone who's looking to buy one online? Uh, first of all, to parents, do not give your children laser pointers. You wouldn't give your children a knife. Don't give them a laser pointer. That my, that's my first message to parents, particularly because of the um, it's not clear which laser pointers are safe, which are unsafe. I would just avoid giving um, uh, avoid giving any child a laser pointer. That's the first thing. With regards to my colleagues, I do recognise the value of laser pointers, particularly in presentations, and there's a, a very good role in education. I would just make sure that you buy your laser pointer from a, an established bricks and mortar establishment on the high street. Um, I don't want to mention any names, but you, we know who they are. So they're on the high street, and they're known for selling, you know, your electrical where, where you get your computer, where you would get your printer, mobile phone, your electrical good. The reason being is because they will make sure that that laser pointer meets the CE mark and therefore meets this one milliwatt output. Uh, I think the danger is when you buy it from online, A, because you maybe unwittingly sold a laser pointer that is labelled as correct, as one milliwatt, but the outputs are higher, or it's been deliberately mislabeled by the seller as being one milliwatt, but the outputs are much higher. I just don't think the market, the online marketplace is as mature or takes consumer safety for laser pointers specifically as seriously as they uh, as they should. But I, I do feel the high street is, a, is you, you can be confident. Well, thank you very much for that. It sounds as though, you know, trading standards, the government and maybe even the college as well should be doing a bit more to increase the awareness of this problem because I'm sure many of my colleagues and especially the general public are probably really unaware of the dangers that these laser pointers can uh, to be fair to the government, they, ha- they, they are doing that. So yeah. um, this Christmas, or last Christmas even, they'd um, spearheaded a laser pen campaign okay. just advising parents not to buy their children a laser pointer for Christmas. And this was a campaign um, that went nationally uh, with some um, television bulletins, news bulletins, as well as uh, radio interviews. And I was happy to be part of that uh, um, initiative. Okay, well, thank you very much. It's been great, great speaking. Uh, it's my pleasure, and thank you for the opportunity to be interviewed. Thank you. Well, I found that really interesting, and I hope you did too. Having personally seen patients who present with significant loss of vision from exposure to such laser pointers, I hope we can improve the awareness related to how dangerous they can be. Our second interview is with Jeff Hogg, a registrar from Newcastle, who spoke to me about prescribing trends in glaucoma. Tell us a bit about what's been going on in the world of glaucoma prescribing. Hi, thanks very much. So this poster is just looking at the last 10 years of English primary care prescribing practice in glaucoma, um, which of course represents most of the secondary uh, care prescribing as well, because it's all repeat prescriptions really. Um, And it basically looks at how prescribing habits and the costs that they've incurred changed over the last decade. And in that period, we've had two revisions of the NICE guideline, one in 2009, 
one in 2017. And so it's just interesting to see how that's been reflected, if at all, um, in the, the practice that's been shown. So, I mean, you've got an, a massive amount of data there going from 2009 to 2018, so congratulations on collecting so much data. How did you manage to get all of that data? So actually all of this data is publicly available. Uh, it's not packaged in the most exciting format, but there's these enormous uh, Excel spreadsheets for each month and then eventually each year that go by for all prescriptions on the NHS. So essentially I just combed through those, uh, picked out all of the ones in the BNF chapter for glaucoma, and then we've normalised it for population increase and also inflation so we can make a good comparison over the years without those factors weighing in. And you make it sound very easy, but I'm sure that sounds like a lot of work. A bit of Excel tweaking here and there, but nothing too odious. That's brilliant. So this is national data, then, not just re regional Newcastle data. That's right, and that's worth emphasising, actually, is this it just represents England. So presumably it's reasonably representative of UK practice as well, mm. but the data can't tell us that for sure. Did you notice any big regional variations in the data? So I didn't actually look into the separate regional um, prescribing differences, but that's an interesting question, and one that's quite relevant for a, another uh, post around the corner about dry eye. I've done a similar thing with ocular lubricant prescription, um, because I know recently some areas have stopped prescribing uh, lubricants and have a new protocol telling people to buy them from pharmacy over the counter, so it would be really interesting just to look at those particular regions and yeah. see what impact that's had. Maybe next year at College Congress we can see that you as well. Maybe. So over the last 10 years, what's the biggest shifts that we've seen? Right, so um, the, it's probably worth, for the sake of context, saying what the changes in the NICE guidance was in 2017, uh, which, to paraphrase uh, enormously and simplify, is essentially that we're encouraged again to have generic prostaglandins as our first-line prescription. When we're up titrating treatment to, to switch class of molecule rather than just or add another class of molecule rather than changing the agent within class, uh, e.g. changing from latanoprost to bimatoprost, although it's worth mentioning that bimatoprost became generic last year as well. Um, and the other thing is that the advice for the prescription of preservative-free glaucoma medicines has been broadened slightly in the wording, uh, so that rather than just being prescribed for people with an allergy to, to uh, preservatives, it also talks about people with symptomatic dry eye. So that sort of widens the population sure. that meet that criteria. And when it says symptomatic dry eye, there's no mention, is there, of objective clinical findings on the cornea? No, there's not particular detail about that. So I think that's left up to the discretion of the clinician, essentially. Sure. So after 2017, when there was a change in the NICE guidance, did you see any significant changes in prescribing trends? So not really. There were sort of trends that continued on. I think it's probably fair to say that the NICE guideline really formalised trends that were already being seen. Um, so generic prescribing has been increasing, which is great, and consequently cost saving has come with that so what we've seen over the 10 years is a huge increase in the number of agents consistently year and year increasing the number of agents prescribed and that's even whilst the number of combination agents has increased 50% in that 10 years so there's a lot more prescribing being done yet the cost had remained relatively static apart from one anomaly which we can come to a bit later. You mentioned combination agents there what does the NICE guidance tell us about combination agents? Uh, so, uh, from memory, I don't think there's any specifics, but when you look into the, the sort of 
data section, one of the appendices, uh, there really isn't any evidence base to say that combination agents is any less effective than two separate prescriptions, if you see what I mean. So I think from a pragmatic point of view and from a patient point of view, the use of combination agents has got to be a good thing because it's less drop usage and also from the taxpayer's point of view, they have a similar cost really to the single agents, so it's cost-saving as well. I mean, on the theme of sustainability, I know that this post was actually nominated for the Royal College of Ophthalmologists Sustainability Prize. Less bottles of drops, I suppose, are better as well. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that's true, absolutely. Yeah. Long live the combination agents. So it's really interesting in your post that you've mentioned about the bizarre idiosyncrasy with regards to the cost of latanoprost. Tell us about that. Yeah, so that, I think, is a, an interesting anomaly. Um, you can break these costs down uh, to month monthly costs, as I was saying, if you really drill down into those dusty Excel spreadsheets. Uh, and essentially, in April 2018 to June 2018, the price of generic latanoprost, which had been quite low, about £2.46 a bottle, all of a sudden jumped up to £19.73. And that's with a cost ceiling that's basically been sorted out by the Department of Health. So they're subsidising that. And having asked about that, apparently that's to do with uh, supply trouble within Europe. Oh, Brexit um, issue then. Well, I don't know. In fact, they specifically denied that. So uh, it's hard to make that link. But then it's also hard to explain why, you know, after years of stability, so the... Mr. Connor, who uh, supervised me on this project, did similar work going back even further. And again, with Tanaprost pricing, had very smooth trends. So really? it is quite a significant blip, and one that actually cost £20 million in 2018 within England. So, you know, it's quite a significant effect just for that little issue. £2.46 to £19.73 is a massive increase, as you do say. Yeah. And it's probably unreasonable to expect clinicians to keep on track of all the various costings of all the different drops to affect their prescribing behaviours as well. Absolutely is. So I think the overarching take-home message as a clinician is to prescribe the molecules rather than the trade names for the drugs because when you prescribe with a trade name uh, you effectively tie the hands of the pharmacist who then has to specifically give that molecule whatever the cost is. Um, whereas if you write you know, latanoprost 0.005%, for instance, you allow the pharmacist to do part of their job, which is to shop around, effectively, and pick the, the cheapest agent uh, as long as it's clinically effective for their patient population. So I completely agree that, you know, our role is not to be trawling these spreadsheets on a daily or monthly basis to try and figure out what prescription to pick, but by making sure that you which is challenging at times. I certainly struggle to, to try and unpick what molecule is which with all the trade names floating around, which ones are available as preservative-free, which ones are available generically. If you can manage to commit some of those to memory or at least a molecule from each group, um, then you could potentially save a lot of money in your practice. Yeah. So one final topic we wanted to discuss was the use of preservative-free medication. I think mm. across clinicians there's probably a big variability in individual clinicians' thresholds for using preservative-free topical glaucoma medications. With the new NICE guidance more or less encouraging more use of these treatments, 
Have you seen an increase in the usage of these over the last few years? Yeah, we have. So over the 10 years that this looked at, preservative-free prescriptions represented 1.7% of uh, the medicines prescribed in 2009, and that's risen to 2.8% um, in uh, 2018. But really the interesting thing that it is that that in 2009 represented 13.9% of the overall prescribing cost, but now um, it's up at 21%. Wow. So it shows you that they're disproportionately expensive. Which so they, is, they are significantly more expensive than their non-preservative-free counterparts. Then. That's correct. Um, although it should be noted that some molecules are generically available, okay. uh, and so those are less costly. Uh, but certainly a cynic might say that some of the preservative-free rise is to do with getting new patents and things like that, um, which aren't necessarily related to clinical need because most of the evidence supporting um, the use of preservative-free glaucoma medicines is actually from preclinical data. There's very little clinical data that actually support their benefit from a patient perspective in terms of signs or symptoms, uh, which is outlined really nicely in a BJO article from 2018. Well, thanks so much, Jeff, for joining us today and discussing your really interesting poster. I think it will be really interesting to see also in the next few years how the prescribing trends in glaucoma are affected by the increasing use of SLT as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I think we'll look forward to maybe some more work from yourself in the future. Great. Thanks very much, Simon. Thanks a lot. Bye. Cheers. If you're starting ophthalmology training next week, congratulations on your achievement. Welcome to the specialty and welcome to the college. Especially for you, I asked my colleague and friend, Kirithi Varro, chair of the ophthalmologists in training group, to share some of his top tips for the beginning of your training. Thanks so much, Sunil. Hi everyone, I'm Kirthi and I'm the chair of the OTG. Sunil's asked me to give you my top tips for ST1 training. First and foremost, congratulations on getting through into ophthalmology. You've probably got through the biggest hurdle in your medical career and you've chosen a very rewarding and enjoyable surgical specialty. Uh, I've condensed my top tips into five. So tip number one is always ask for help. You realise very early on that you're surrounded by unfamiliar language, technologies, equipment, and initially can be quite overwhelming. Don't hesitate to ask your senior registrars for help or your consultants as well, who'll be more than obliging. No one expects you to know how to use a slit lamp from day one. So remember to always ask for help. Tip number two is to remember the visual patterns. 90% um, of the pathology in ophthalmology is visual. And when consultants or senior colleagues show you what a cataract looks like, what uveitis looks like, what cells look like, just remember the visual patterns. Because once you've seen it, you won't forget it. Um, and that'll make the rest of your career so much easier in terms of picking up new patterns and recognising those patterns immediately as abnormal versus normal. My third top tip is make the most of simulations. So we've got access to a range of eyesight surgical simulators um, and there's a whole range of games you can play on them to improve your hand-to-eye coordination, but you'll really benefit from using the simulator early on before you start actual cataract surgery, um, particularly doing capsulorexis practice um, and knowing your depth perception and learning that early on. So my advice to you is really book onto a simulator early in ST1 and get the most um, simulation time under your belt that you possibly can. My fourth 
top tip is to make the most of your research, study, teaching, audit session or RSTA sessions. So as an ST1, most of you will have at least one RSTA session a week. And we fought quite hard as the OTG to protect this throughout your training. So most senior registrars will get two RSTA sessions a week. And you can really use this to fill out any other part of your CV that you want to focus on, whether it's leadership training, doing teaching, conducting departmental audits, um, additional surgical training, whatever you want to do, really make the most of it. Um, and it's one of the unique things about ophthalmology training that we have protected time to do this during your working week. And finally, my last top tip is really enjoy it. Um, ophthalmology is a really rewarding career. It's really good fun as well. And you're surrounded by a very tight-knit community. So really reach out, make friends, attend teaching, attend regional conferences and meetings, um, your national trainees conference um, in Congress and our trainee forum at Congress. Make sure you attend all of these um, and you'll realise that there's a you're surrounded by a group of equally bright and uh, fun people to hang out with. So that's all my top tips are um, for starting SD1. Really enjoy it and well done again on getting into ophthalmology. Unfortunately, that's the end of our first episode. I hope you enjoyed it and if you did, make sure to subscribe. If you'd like to get involved with the podcast, come on the show or have any feedback at all, we would love to hear from you. Simply send an email to communications at rcops.ac.uk. Episode 2 is already in production and we can't wait to share it with you. Until next time though, take care.